You can turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation. That's the last book in your Bible in case you still can't find it uh, after all these weeks. Uh, Revelation 19, verses 7 through 10. This morning we will uh, look at this wonderful passage again. The title of the message is The True Words of God. So that means I have to get all the way through to verse 9 today. Uh, which hopefully won't be too much of a challenge. But this Bible that we have is the true words of God. And uh, that is an, it is an incredible privilege to be able to have it in our hands. We, are, we live in a unique time in human history, really. God has been revealing himself to people for thousands of years and telling them, to write it down, and really it's not until the last, oh, uh, 500 years or so that it's even been available to people uh, on, a, on any kind of a scale. And, and uh, it's not really until modern, very, even very modern times that we've been able to, every person, to have their own copy. And now if you're anything uh, like us, you probably have multiple copies of the Bible in your home and you can have it with you all the time. So we can fall into the trap of taking God's word for granted and we ought, we ought not to do that. Sometimes it's a good idea to step back and, and realize what we actually have. We have God's word written to us and we're able to have it and read it and study it. And so today we come to uh, some a part of the Bible that is separated off and called the true words of God. It's all true. It's all God's truth. But for reasons that we will see today, an angel specifically calls these words the true words of God. So we will make our way to that. As you know, we've been studying Revelation uh, for these last several weeks, uh, over a year now, that we've been in this wonderful book. And it's easily broken down into three parts from Revelation 1.19. We see how this book is broken down, how it was revealed to John and what he was going to write. And, And this is, it's so important for us to to understand this outline, to properly understand what is being written to us in this book. Uh, There are many, many people who just kind of take the book of Revelation. There are a myriad of of, uh, different interpretations. We'll give it a nice word. Uh, (laughs) uh, And one of their main problems is not seeing the outline of the book, let alone the rest of, of the Bible. But John is instructed to write the things which you have seen. We saw that was essentially chapter one in a great uh, vision of the risen Christ and his incredible uh, power that is a part of, of who he is. That is the one who is being revealed in this book. So first John was to write the things which you have seen. And then he was to write the things which are 
That's chapters two and three, messages to churches that, that literally existed at that time. That's, what, that's who this book is addressed to. The book of Revelation is essentially addressed to seven churches, not unlike Flushing Bible Church, but they're, they're different churches than Flushing Bible Church. They're in various cities uh, of that time literal churches that existed, that, that God had different messages for each one of those churches. But those same messages, of course, apply across the board to every church and to every individual who is a believer. Essentially, uh, get your right life right with the Lord was the message that the overwhelming message that the angel had for the churches that came from God himself revealed to John to write down for us. And then he was to write the things which will take place after these things. Very clear. Future events. After the church is over, after the things which are have completed, then different events are going to take place. And that's the main body of the letter uh, that we find beginning in chapter 4 uh, and progressing all the way through to the end of the book. Things which are future. Things which will take place after these things. And we find ourselves coming to the end of the section that describes the tribulation period. And as we are seeing, saw last week and seeing uh, again this week, even some events that are taking place after the tribulation period in what is known as the kingdom and uh, and even moving into eternity that we see in Revelation 21 and 22. Things which take place after these things, future events. And that, that's the main part of the book and the part that everybody is uh, typically interested in. So last time we got through, oh, I believe we just made it through verse 7 last time. And we're going to do a little bit uh, of review of that as well, e even in the body of the message, because this is important for us to, to understand this concept. The marriage of the Lamb. Last time we answered just two of the questions. When is the wedding? There's a lot of uh, disagreement, a lot of confusion I don't know if confusion is the right word, but definitely a lot of disagreement about this topic, the marriage of the Lamb, even among dispensationalists with, with, which, with whom we would agree on, on most things. And most of the uh, dispute originates with this first question. When is this wedding taking place? Revelation 19.7 says, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So when is this marriage? Well, I think the answer is given to us in verse six, which is actually the beginning of the quote where it says, hallelujah, praise the Lord. That re uh, means, if you'll remember, we actually sang that in one of our hymns this morning, alleluia. That's kind of the the Latinized version, same word, hallelujah, praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. He is reigning. Remember, this is a section of 
the revelation that is kind of like the post-game show, if you will, that is looking at events that took place and even looking to events that's going that are going to take place in the future. This isn't advancing the chronology of the book. This is a review section of the book. And that began all the way back in chapter 17 with discussing Babylon. Now we're going now we're moving towards talking about the other city that the Bible is about Jerusalem, in this case, the new Jerusalem. But the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. He has begun to reign. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Same language. The Lord reigning and the marriage coming is described with the same verbs, that same types of verbs. That puts this marriage of the Lamb into the kingdom. And in fact, that's what the marriage of the lamb is. The marriage of the lamb, the marriage supper of the lamb is a great celebration because God is dwelling with people. Jesus Christ physically comes again to the earth, establishes his kingdom over the earth. That is cause for great separation or for great celebration because he's not separated from us anymore. And so uh, many dispensationalists even will uh, kind of come to a different conclusion and put the marriage supper of the lamb uh, into the period during the tribulation. The church is raptured. The church is the bride of Christ, fits with that viewpoint. The bride is raptured, taken to heaven, married to Christ in heaven, and then comes back again with him. There's a problem with that. And that's what the true words of God are. According to verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If the church is the bride, then who's invited? And why is there such a great uh, blessing mentioned there? So, That was our next question that we spent most of our time on last week was who is the bride? And we came to the conclusion that yes, the church is part of the bride or the church is the bride in some respects. And we'll look at some of these verses again, but there's more to it than just the church being the bride of Christ in this particular passage. We're studying the book of Revelation. And uh, one of the mistakes that people can make is taking uh, figurative language from one place in the Bible and then applying that truth to everywhere else in the Bible where similar language is used. That's a mistake that, that can be made. That's a, uh, there are several examples of making that same kind of a mistake of of taking a truth from one place and automatically applying it everywhere in the Bible regardless of the context that can get us that can get us into some problems interpreting the Bible is very complicated business and that's a good thing for us uh, like I mentioned last week do we want to worship a god who is can be complex and difficult to understand all of the aspects of him? 
or do we just, or do we want to make a God, carve it out of wood and know everything about it and just put it on a shelf and worship that instead? The answer ought to be pretty obvious to us. We don't want to be like the pagans. We want to worship the God of the universe who has revealed himself to us in his word. So it, it might take some effort on our part to, to do that sometimes. And that's, this is one of those places. So the marriage is a celebration of God dwelling with his people. The bride is the people of God. The, to give it a generic term, I would say, in this, in this case. And that's you and me. That's every person who will, has, and who will trust in Christ as their uh, Messiah, as their Savior, the one who's saving them from their sins. Uh, have to remember the context. Context, context, context. We'll look at that uh, again this morning in some detail as we study the true words of God. We'll begin with the bride. And then we'll look at the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. And then we'll see this incredible blessing. So let's get to it so we can make it all the way through. Uh, Revelation 7, Revelation 19 and verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. We begin this morning by looking at the bride again, yeah, because it is worthy of understanding this, that that is the bride is the people of God, kind of a generic term. Uh, you may hear uh, this same kind of term being used by reformed people. And when they use this term, you, you got to understand the de definition of the terms. When they are using this term, uh, they are referring to uh, the church, actually, when they say this, and that the church has replaced Israel. The church now receives all the blessings of Israel. The nation of Israel doesn't really play a role in God's plan for now or in the future. Uh, it's all about the church. And that, uh, of course, is a mistake. Uh, however, in this case, it, uh, I think that term is apt. Because the only people who are going to be in this kingdom, in this celebration of uh, a marriage that is given the figurative language of the marriage supper of the Lamb are people who have trusted in Christ as their Messiah. And that is uh, any Jewish person, Gentile person, black, white, yellow, red, whoever you are, if you are a person who has trusted in Christ as your Messiah, as your Savior, you will be in this uh, marriage supper of the Lamb, this marriage celebration 
that is to come. And in Revelation 19, I think it is referring to the church, you and me, people, since uh, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, who have trusted in Christ, uh, they are included in this. And I would hesitate to not include the tribulation saints in this uh, group of people who are being referenced here as uh, taking part in this celebration as the bride. I would hesitate to not include tribulation saints as they are said to have the same clothing as in various parts of the Bible as we have, uh, as we saw last time. Like I mentioned earlier, I think it's a mistake to take this concept of the bride uh, or of marriage and the interconnection between the church and Christ and that is compared to marriage by a different author in a different book of the Bible and then automatically apply it to this situation being written here by the Apostle John. Paul compares our, the marriage relationship uh, or our relationship to Christ with that of the marriage relationship, and that's exactly what it is, a comparison. He is not making a theological distinction between the relationship of believers in Christ today and uh, believers in Old Testament times, for example. They received eternal life the same way that you and I do by trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They looked forward to the Messiah coming and uh, giving them eternal life. We look back to the Messiah, the, uh, Jesus, as the one who did it for us. I think, I know, Old Testament saints will absolutely be included in the, Old Te in the Millennial Kingdom. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 says, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, Daniel, Israelites, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. That's what we're studying in Revelation, the tribulation period being revealed to Daniel. There's going to come a time when incredible distress will happen. And at that time, your people, Israel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Old Testament believers are going to be raised again and they will enter into the kingdom. Ezekiel chapter 20, I believe it is, if memory serves, talks about the Israelite people passing under the rod. Those who pass the judgment will enter into the kingdom. Those who do not will be excluded from the kingdom period. Uh, do they fit in with this bride language here in Revelation 19? Uh, Probably not. No, I would say that they probably don't because they are being resurrected uh, after Christ comes again. There's going to be some kind of uh, period of time of judgment. And again, this is getting into kind of the uh, 
I guess you could say the weeds, if you will, uh, and pulling in a lot of different parts of the Bible together to make a complete picture. Nowhere is this uh, completely step-by-step revealed so that we can have an exact picture. Uh, I don't think that they are going to be included in this bride uh, as the bride at this point, at any rate, because we see these same people returning with Christ who are mentioned here early in Revelation 19. They're returning with Christ. That means they will have already had to have been resurrected before he comes again. So there is a distinction between Old Testament believers and church age and tribulation believers that are, I think, pictured here more clearly. Uh, We see that the bride, Revelation 21 and verse 9 and following, is given more description there. Revelation 21.9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So there is an, uh, an ongoing expansion of who is included in the bride, if you will, uh, as we move through time. And then at that point, yes, the Old Testament believers are going to be included. People who believe during the millennium are going to be included in that. And we'll spend obviously more time looking at that as we make our way into Revelation 21. And we'll study that in some more uh, detail. The bride and the wife are the same. Some teachers will make a distinction between, oh, the the bride is the church and the wife is uh, Israel. Well, that's uh, kind of hard to to come to that conclusion when we see Revelation 21, 9. Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. There's no and in there, or there's nothing to draw a distinction between the bride and the wife. The bride is the wife. The wife is the bride. Uh, the person who I married is my wife. She was. She is my bride. She is my wife. It's the same. It's the same person. And there's not. There isn't a distinction in the scriptures as far as that goes, either. Uh, people. Well, interestingly, in the Greek, we'll get to that first. We come back to Revelation 19 and verse 7. That word for uh, bride. Let us rejoice and be glad. Give him the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That is the Greek term gyne. And that is a term that is translated as woman, as wife, and in this case, as bride, Revelation, uh, if memory serves, Revelation is the only place in the New Testament where the term gyne is translated as bride. In other words, it could very easily be translated as wife. So again, kind of drawing a distinction between wife and bride when according to the language, 
there, there really isn't one. The terms are, are interchangeable in the Greek. And then the same word, Revelation 21 and verse 9, I come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. It actually does use a different word there. Uh, nymphy is the, the Greek term for bride used there. Gyne is the, the term that is translated as wife. And Revelation 21, 9. The fact of the matter is that, yes, Israel is said to be married to, the na- uh, to God. The nation of Israel is said to be married to God. And it uses precisely the same uh, kind of language that we see used of the church. Believers in the nation of Israel have the same relationship with God that we do through trust in the Messiah, absolutely true in the millennial period. And there are several verses that make reference to uh, this, to the relationship between Israel and God as being a marriage. And in nearly everyone, if not everyone, it is a reference to the relationship that Israel has with God in the kingdom period. Hosea 2 and verse 18. Hosea 2 is is probably the most famous passage that people go to to uh, see this marriage relationship that God has with Israel. Hosea 2, 18. In that day... What day? The kingdom period. This is making a reference to, I also will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field. Here's how we know, because he's not only making a covenant with Israel, but he's also making a covenant with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. Oh, there's something's going to happen to creation? That's interesting. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. There's going to be great peace during this uh, time period. Yes, in fact, there will be. And will make them lie down in safety. Israel is going to be completely safe during this time. Verse 19 of Hosea 2, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness, and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. When is Israel going to be in a perfect relationship with the God who made them? In the kingdom period. That's when they will know the Lord. They will be married to him in faithfulness in the kingdom period. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, a very uh, well-known passage speaking of the new covenant that Israel has with uh, God. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, the Mosaic Covenant. 
although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The new covenant will come into effect for the nation of Israel in the kingdom period. That is when they will be married uh, to God, the nation of Israel. Uh, Ezekiel 16, uh, Isaiah 54, 6, Isaiah 62, 5, many references to marriage, the marriage relationship between God and Israel, all of them making a reference to the kingdom period. This doesn't mean, of course, that the church has replaced Israel. Of course, it's exactly the opposite. Of, not exactly the opposite. The church hasn't replaced Israel. We are, uh, as believers in Christ in the church age, partakers in the kingdom promises. Not overtakers, partakers. We partake in the kingdom. Revelation 5.10 says that we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years on this earth. When he comes again, we will rule and reign with him. We will partake in the kingdom. We will partake in the marriage supper of the Lamb, this great celebration, along with the nation of Israel. Of course, Israel has a future with God. That is when he is going to fulfill all of his promises to the nation of Israel. Uh, this book of Revelation is written to churches. Uh, it is geared toward us. That's why it's, it, it, it makes reference to kind of Israelitish things or Jewish things, if you will, in this section that we are uh, learning about, I think that's to show us that the church isn't going to be here during the tribulation period. It's going to uh, be more like it was in the Old Testament times as far as God's relationship with the world goes. Uh, the book of Revelation, so it's different than the Old Testament. It doesn't replace the Old Testament. It adds to it. It gives us more information about this future tribulation period, and in fact, this future kingdom period. And the marriage supper is the kingdom. We looked at these, uh, this passage, Matthew 22, last time where Jesus referred to uh, a marriage supper. Now I'm going to kind of do what I just said to not do, <laughs> as a matter of fact in this comparing Matthew and Luke, our scripture reading this morning. And I said, well, you don't want to take what a different author wrote and apply that to other places in the Bible unless, unless the context is exactly the same. And then you can do that. Jesus is referencing in both of these passages the future, the kingdom. He's saying people were invited into this kingdom, and they decided they had something better to do rather than uh, 
go after the Lord. Uh, like we talked about in Sunday school, seek his wisdom. No, I've got my oxen to take care of. Oh, I married a wife. No, I don't want to go to that. I don't want to do that. Uh, I've got better things to do. That sort of an attitude makes the Lord angry, as we see in Matthew and in Luke. And uh, so the people who were originally invited, first century Jewish Israel, is going to have problems with God. That is the message of Matthew 22 and Luke 14, because they rejected the invitation to the kingdom. If they would have accepted it, somehow God would have made the kingdom come at that point in time. They rejected it. Now other people have to be invited to the kingdom, in addition to Israel, because it makes very clear that all Israel is going to be saved. Romans chapter 11 makes that very clear. Our Old Testament passages make very clear that all Israel is going to trust in the Messiah. They will trust in him for their salvation. He will come again. Jesus is the speaker in both Matthew and Luke. Both places, he's talking about the future kingdom period, and he is comparing it to a wedding feast. What is going on here in Revelation? We have an angel revealing the words of God, saying, the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. He's come again to the earth. That happens with this in conjunction with the seventh bowl judgment. Those have already been poured out. That's why he's making these statements here. The Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Verse 6, let us rejoice and be glad. Give him the glory. The marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage, marriage supper of the Lamb is a celebration of God <laughs> dwelling with his people in an intimate relationship comparable to a marriage. And so that's why we can go to these other places in the Bible and compare them to Revelation 19 because it's the same context, talking about the same, precisely the same event. Paul, when he speaks of marriage, the church being married to Christ, makes a, a comparison between marriage and the church's relationship with Christ. He's not talking about the future. He's not talking about the kingdom period. He's talking about right now. Uh, it's not a reference to the future kingdom at all. But again, it's absolutely fine to refer to the church as the bride of Christ. I don't want to take that away from anybody. Just make sure that you're using it in the right kind of context and realize that everywhere that there's marriage imagery referenced, it doesn't necessarily mean that's what is being uh, described. Have to pay very close attention to the context. So now that that's clear as mud, let's move on to the bema or the judgment seat of Christ because the, these, uh, this imagery uh, continues. And what does it say there in verse 8? Uh, verse 7, his bride has made herself ready at the end of verse 7. It was given to her to clothe herself 
in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The bride has made herself ready. Again, it's uh, aorist, active, indicative. That's the same as uh, the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns, aorist, active, indicative. Uh, the marriage of the Lamb has come, aorist, active, indicative. The, the bride has made herself ready. This is the angel looking forward to the future and seeing that these events have taken place. That's why they uh, use the aorist tense. The aorist is not like our tenses in English, past, present, and future. It doesn't really fit into one of those molds. It's just saying that the action has taken place. It has begun to take place. It can even mean... And so when we see that the bride has made herself ready, there are, there are kind of several aspects to this. We as God's people are certainly supposed to be making ourselves ready for him to come again. Uh, we see that in many places, that we are saved to serve. We're not just saved and taken to heaven. We are saved and are supposed, supposed to be making ourselves ready for Christ to come again. That's what it means to be living for him. Uh, at this very point in time, Christ is preparing a place for us, according to John 14 and verse 1. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That is the, the first promise of the rapture of the church there, Jesus speaking to uh, believers in him. Judas had left. He makes them a promise that if he goes, he's going to come again. Uh, if he goes, he's preparing a place for you and he will come again and take you from this place to that place that he is preparing for you. And that, of course, is in heaven. And so we ought to be making ourselves ready for this coming again. And that's a, a slightly different application than what is being referenced here in 19 with the bride uh, making herself ready. Yes, we ought to be living for the Lord, understanding that at any moment in time, he can come again for us and we will stand before him in judgment. This uh, new Jerusalem is also being prepared. Again, we'll study more about that in Revelation 21 and 22. It is being prepared for us also. These are two different things that are uh, prepared. Christ is preparing temporary dwelling places for us for a period of about seven years, maybe a little bit longer. That's what he's preparing for us. We will go there, be with him, and then return to him uh, to this earth, return with him to this earth to rule and reign for a thousand years. And then we will be in the new Jerusalem 
for eternity, Revelation 21 and 22. The church is going to be made ready for the future. In fact, in some respects, it already is made ready for the future because Christ is the one who has saved us. But at the judgment seat of Christ, then we will be made ready to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Uh, and that kind of plays a role in this, in what we are seeing here this judgment seat of Christ. We have spent some time studying this before. It is a judgment that is for believers, according to uh, Romans 14, 10 through 12. It's a promise to believers that we are going to stand before him in judgment. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 also. Uh, it is a determination of reward only. See, we as believers in Christ today have already trusted in him. We do not face judgment. We do not face condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We face a time of judgment, but it is for reward. Second John 8 says, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Jesus is standing at the door uh, he has a reward with him if we are faithful to him, walking by faith, trusting in him, uh, confessing our sins to him. He will give us a reward. It is not a determination of judgment. Romans 5.1, uh, Romans 8.1, Colossians 2.13 through 15. Our judgment has already been paid for at the cross. It's been nailed to the cross. Uh, by trusting in Christ and what he did for us on the cross, we have complete forgiveness for our sins. We have no reason to have an expectation that we face judgment in the future as believers in Christ because we're trusting in the fact that Christ took all of that for us. And in a number of places, there are crowns mentioned for the believers uh, that we won't uh, take the time to go through all of those again now. Uh, but there, there is an expectation of reward for believers. And that does, in some respects, uh, play into this, what is being spoken of here, making ourselves ready to rule and reign with the Lord and to be with him. These rewards come from him and they are a reward for faithful living for the Lord. Now notice again that it does say that uh, it was given to her, verse 8, it was given to her to clothe herself in the fine linen. There could be a couple of different aspects to this. Uh, in that, our righteousness is given to us, but we also are made ready through walking with the Lord. 
this idea of transferred righteousness is absolutely critical for the believer. Without it, we do not have salvation. And that is that it's a part of justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who made him, he made him sin. Now I've got to look it up. <laughs> he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's justification. Christ who knew no sin went to the cross on our behalf we trust in what he did for us and Christ's righteousness, the one who did no sin, is transferred, credited to us as the believer. Our guilt is credited to Christ. He pays for it on the cross. His righteousness is credited to us. That's quite a transaction. That is transferred righteousness. And that is absolutely essential for us to be made ready to rule and reign with Christ, to live with Christ for eternity, to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb, you have to, you must undergo this transfer, Jew, Gentile, whoever you are. And you aren't getting this by keeping a set of rules and regulations. That's not how God operates. He operates by transferring his righteousness to those who believe in him, to those who trust in him, not to those who uh, work for him. Romans 4 or 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Faith is credited to you as righteousness as we trust in him. But notice also that these works are prepared beforehand that we are to walk in. This is what I'm, what I'm referencing, the kind of the dual nature of this. It was given to her to clothe herself in verse 8. Uh, yes, we have transferred righteousness but we also have works that were prepared beforehand that we are to be walking in. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The salvation is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in in them. Titus 2:11 through 14 we look forward to the coming again of Christ but in the meantime we're to be zealous for good deeds. Titus 2:11 for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteously and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Titus 2.14 equals 
Revelation 19.8, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. Christ saves us for the purpose of being zealous for good deeds. So we are uh, being made ready for this time of celebration with the Lord. And that, that's our three tenses of salvation, if you will. Transferred righteousness at justification. Our guilt is transferred to Christ. His righteousness is transferred to us as we uh, trust in what he did for us on the cross. Then we are to be zealous for good deeds, looking forward to the blessed hope when we are caught up to be with the Lord in, in the Father's house for seven plus years and with him on the earth for a thousand years and then with him for eternity. That ought to be motivating us to walk with him today, to live for him today, preparing ourselves for uh, this marriage supper of the Lamb. And so uh, these, it says there, it was given to her, verse 8, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, we, I have kind of made the point to, uh, that the bride is very intimately related in this language with the kingdom period at this celebration of uh, God living with people and the marriage supper of the lamb. And even Revelation 21, nine, we've looked at it several times the, I will show you the bride and the wife. The new Jerusalem is what is described as the bride and the wife dwelling with God for eternity is uh, what is being mentioned here. So there is an intimate relationship between the kingdom and the people who will be in it. Just like we've seen with the end times, one world government, there's an intimate relationship between the Antichrist and his kingdom. They're described with exactly the same language, king and kingdom, uh, both described as a beast with many heads and all of that language that we looked at. Jesus Christ and his kingdom, king and kingdom, intimately joined together, uh, almost indistinguishable. That's why Jesus can say the kingdom is in your midst as he is standing there with the Jewish authorities. Why can he say that? Because he is it. Christ is the kingdom. The kingdom is Christ. If you will just believe in him, you can be there with him too. And here, in verse 8 in particular, I think we're seeing the same kind of thing, that the, that the kingdom and its people are intimately related. It's sort of like referring to uh, the house that I happen to dwell in as the Obermeyers. Uh, we're going to the Obermeyers house tonight. We're going to the Vaughn's house tonight. We're going to so-and-so's house. The house and the people who live there are interchangeable language, if you will. Uh, it's a house, but it has the name and of the family that is associated with it. And so 
prayerfully uh, and with a lot of study and sometimes consternation, our house is characterized as a godly one, a place where Christ is modeled, and that ought to be your your goal as well, as as opposed to uh, a house of ill repute, if you will, like a brothel. Uh, that's a house also. That is not a house that is associated with godliness, but it still has a name that tells you exactly the kind of place that it is. And this is the same sort of uh, language that is being used here. That's why the righteous acts of the saints can be the clothing for the bride. The righteous acts of the saints are letting us know what kind of a place this new dwelling is, this new Jerusalem is. It is a place of righteousness and righteous people, and they are making it ready. They're making it what it is through their righteous acts in verse 8. Those who are in the kingdom are characterized uh, by the righteous acts of the saints. We will see later that those who are excluded from the kingdom are characterized by their sin, essentially. The kingdom will be a place, and the New Jerusalem in particular, will be a place of perfect fellowship with God. And so the people who are there uh, receive the transferred righteousness of Christ and are therefore walking in righteousness. Those who are excluded do not have the transferred righteousness of Christ. So the only thing that they're known by are their lies, murders, immorality, and everything else that goes along with that. And so the the Judgment seat of Christ, that bema, is, plays a role in this. The righteous acts of the saints are the clothing for the, this uh, kingdom that is coming. It's like a house being characterized by the righteousness of the people who live there. And then finally, notice the blessing. Blessed are those, Makarios, uh, it says in verse 9, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Blessed are those, this is the, the Greek term, Makarios. Uh, it's where we get our beatitudes, if you will. It's kind of the Latin uh, term for blessing. Some translations will say happy. Uh, Matthew 5, 3 through 12 are the, uh, what are known as the Beatitudes. There is a uh, passage, Luke eleven twenty seven. Notice what this says. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you in the breasts at which you nurse. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Those who hear the word of God and observe it will be in the ultimate uh, form of blessing this kingdom period that is to come in the future. This is the same uh, kind of thing that is being mentioned here. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There are seven 
blessing statements in the book of Revelation. You remember Revelation 1-3, there's a blessing for reading, hearing, and heeding this book. Uh, and we've made our way through two others. And now to here, there's a, a great blessing for being invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's one of the questions that I personally have, at least anyway, is if the church is the bride, then who is invited to the wedding? Who are those who are invited? A a bride is not invited to her wedding. She is the wedding. She is the celebration. Uh, (laughs) How many men really care about the details of their wedding, you know. Oh, what are the flowers going to be? What what are what are the women in the wedding party going to be wearing? What am I going to be wearing? Where's the reception? What kind of food are we going to have? Uh, no, <laughs> I don't know about the rest of you men, but for me, uh, including the groom, let alone the other men uh, in the area, it's more like, oh, I've got to wear a tuxedo. When am I supposed to be there? Where, where is this event going to take place? It's a completely different uh, circumstance between the men and the women. A wedding is all about the bride. She is not the one who is invited. And notice here that there is an incredible blessing for being invited to this marriage and to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper, as we've seen, is the kingdom and uh, into eternity. As pointed out in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, There's also going to be another, a different supper that's different than the marriage supper that we're going to see when Christ comes again. Revelation 19 and beginning in verse 11, we'll see the second coming of Christ to the earth. And then in verse 17, after Christ has slayed all of his enemies, there comes this statement, verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God. There is going to be a Millions and millions, if not billions of dead people, this angel is summoning the birds of the air to come and gorge themselves on the dead bodies that result. That is a very different (laughs) uh, supper than what is being spoken of here in Revelation 19. And there is an invitation going out to you. Which Which supper... Do you want to attend? Do you want to attend the marriage supper of God? Well, then you ought to respond to the gospel. Jesus even proclaimed that there were going to be a a different group of people other than just Israelites who will be included in this kingdom period. John 10 and verse 14, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, not exclusively, but I must bring them also in addition to you. 
and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And that one flock of people, any person who will respond to the truth of salvation through faith in Christ will come under this, become part of this one flock with one shepherd and will enter into the marriage supper of the lamb, the kingdom that is to come and will dwell with him for eternity. That's our decision that we have to make. Will we trust in the one who uh, had no unrighteousness, who went to the cross and bore our unrighteousness so that he could transfer his righteousness to us if we will just believe in him, we can have his righteousness and enter into this kingdom period? Or will we reject that? Will we say, "Um, I'm kind of busy uh, right now. I've got other things to do. Uh, I don't even think there is a God. Why Why would I even bother? Well, the fact of the matter is that if you are in the generation that when Christ comes again, you're going to be uh, not invited to another supper, you're going to be the supper. The birds are called to assemble for the great supper of God to feast on you if you reject Christ. And the angel in Revelation 19.9 says, these are the true words of God. This is the truth, uh, world, <laughs> everybody. I think everybody here is pretty on board with that. The true words of God is that there, are, that there is a decision that each one of us has to make. Are we going to accept Christ as our Savior and enter into eternal bliss, eternal perfect fellowship with him the way life was intended to be, or are we going to reject him and not be invited to the supper, but be the supper that we read about in Revelation 19.17? The choice is pretty clear cut. It's black and white. It's either yes or no. Do you want to live with him for eternity, or do you want to trust in your own thinking. I pray that we all trust in Christ, the true words of God, so that we can enjoy life with him forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation and the the truth that we find there, particularly these true words of God. I thank you for the invitation that went out to me personally, uh, to live with you forever through trusting in what you have done for me. I thank you for the people who went to every person who is here, who's trusted in you. I thank you for their faithfulness. And I just pray that we too would be faithful to those people that we come in contact with that need to hear the true words of God, that you have died for them, that you lived in this world, lived a perfect life, and that you died for their sins, and that we can have salvation by simply trusting in you. I thank you for those true words, and may we uh, have the boldness and the opportunity to speak them to those who so desperately need to hear it. I just pray that you would go with us in these weeks to come, help us to be faithful to you, and we thank you for preparing us for this future. I just pray that we would submit to it uh, in faith,
and by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.